0: Hello, it's Richard Herring here. Welcome to my podcast feed, powered by Acas Plus, and my stand-up tour is about to begin. Can I have my ball back? First stand-up tour in six years. Many of you just know me from the podcast. Don't know? I've done fourteen or fifteen stand-up tours in my own right. I'm a brilliant stand-up comedian, and can I have my ball back? I think it's my best show ever. That's what the audiences are saying. It's about testicular cancer, but it's funny because testicles are funny, even though cancer isn't. Uh, I'm really pleased with it. I'd love you to come and see it. Bring your friends. Some of the shows selling really well, some of them selling really badly. It's a traditional Richard Herring tour. But here's where I'm going to be. 2nd of May, Thursday, at the Luton Hat Factory. It's a small venue, but there are still tickets left. 3rd of May, I'm at the Berry Hedge End, which is near Southampton. That's looking more full, but still some availability. 8th of May, I'm at the Leicester Square Theatre. There's about 10 tickets left for that one, though I am back at the Leicester Square Theatre in June. And then I'm at St Albans on the 9th, Gloucester on the 10th. Chorley Little Theatre on the 11th. That's sold out, but you can join the waiting list. And then the 12th of May, I'm at Glasgow. Afternoon show sold out evening show, extra show, put on, still with tickets. And then there's lots more. Go to richardherring.com slash tour or richardherring.com gigs. And now, enjoy whatever podcast I've given you. It's free. It's all for you. If you want to pay me back, buy a book. Come and see a show. That's all I've got to say to you. Love you. Well, hello, my fine friend. I'm Richard Herring, and this is episode seven of Can I Have My Ball Back? It's a podcast series inspired by my bollocks, one of them in particular, and the terrible trauma that, let's face it, they both went through in 2021. We forget about the left one, but sometimes it's harder to be the survivor than the one who leaves. One of my balls certainly didn't come out of this very well at all. Uh, It's on a shelf somewhere, which is not ideal for testicles. That's not where you want them. You want them in your scrotum. But on the other hand, the other one is now thriving in its new role as a hand Solo testicle. I see my scrotum very much as the Millennium Falcon. So swings and roundabouts. If you want to know more about this story, my book, also called Can I Have My Ball Back, is out in paperback from October the 18th. 2023. It's £11. You can get it wherever you get your books or good bookshops, probably some rubbish ones as well. If you wait long enough, it might be in the works for £2.99. But don't wait, go out and buy it now. It's a great read, including stuff that you get in this series and lots, lots more. Anyway, I just will say I'm a little bit under the weather as I record this, so sorry I've got a bit of a croaky voice, but don't worry. It's just a cold. I will survive to the end of this series. If it kills me, if it's the last thing I do. Later on this episode, we're going to discover how you can use testes to navigate your way across the Pacific Ocean. Have I gone insane? Maybe I have, I don't know. I mean, you probably need a bit of training first. So I'm not suggesting you should go to the Pacific Ocean just to do this. Dip your nuts in and try and plot a direct route to Hawaii. No, do not try this at home. Unless your testicles have been properly trained. Give it a go in your bath first and see if you can get from one end of the bath to the other. If that works out, then, you know, maybe you're ready. Anyway, we're going to find out all about that with my guest, astronomer Harriet Witt, who I absolutely adore. But before that, let us first navigate our way back into my own testicular journey. In the last episode, I was suffering from crotch rot, speaking with God and questioning how much semen a single plum can generate But what I hadn't discovered yet, for sure, was what was actually wrong with my now-excised nadger. I got the call uh, about eight days after the operation. I got a call from a guy I'd not spoken to before. Uh, He tried to keep up the tension a bit, first of all asking me how the recovery was going, telling me that I'd be walking like John Wayne for a little bit longer yet. Dated reference that the youngsters aren't going to understand. (laughs) Then he hit me with the news. You probably won't be surprised to learn that this was cancer. Um, I'm not sure if I was surprised or not. I'd almost convinced myself that the aberration had been a tiny submarine crewed by Racker Welsh uh, that got stuck in the thin tubules of my groin, but uh, it wasn't the unexpected diagnosis. I was sort of pleased, I suppose, to have that sorted out. You'd have thought the doctor telling me I had cancer would treat it with the utmost seriousness, but he was very upbeat about it all, I have to say. It was like it was good news. He told me the cancer had been safely ensconced inside my ball like the hazelnut in the middle of a Ferrero Rocher. Um, LAUGHTER But that is not the correct metaphor. It's actually... uh, If you're going to compare it to confectionery, it's much more like the plastic pod in a Kinder Egg. But um, it doesn't really matter which chocolate it was. The point was the cancer hadn't spread. They got it all out of me, which was amazing news. However, what the doctor told me next was actually more of a surprise than the fact that I'd indeed had cancer. I learned for the first time in this whole process that testicular cancer has a 99% survival rate. Um, Why was I only being told that now, though? I just spent... (laughs) i just spent a month convinced I was about to die, trying to create memories of my children who I thought would not remember who I was. And no one had said... Maybe I'd, they'd told me and I'd blanked it out or hadn't been listening, but... I'm reasonably confident I would have grabbed onto that like a doctor grabbing onto the bollocks of someone they'd just met. Uh, it's, I'd, have, I'd have really liked to have been given that statistic six weeks before. Uh, surely my GP, when he told me that if he was a betting man, he'd wager my enlarged bollock wasn't testicular cancer, could have added that furthermore, if it was cancer, he'd definitely bet on my survival, given the incredible odds in my favour. LAUGHTER um, I believe the NHS discourages its staff discussing cancer until it's been diagnosed, but surely there should be an exception if the cancer is basically curable. That's my only criticism of the whole process, really, is that they didn't give me that information straight away. Uh, The worst thing about the last month and a half had been the feeling of dread in the pit of my stomach and the fear I was going to cease to be before my pen had gleaned my teeming brain. Yeah, reference to Keats. right over your fucking heads. it's a reference to... Keats poem this is a classy show it's not just about balls (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure still even with that 99% I'm sure I'd have managed to conjure up all kinds of scenarios where I snuffed it I could be the 1% after all there are 1% who don't make it and I'm not disparaging or making light of that that's still terrible but it would have made me a little bit less afraid, I think, to know that. But it was, it was actually quite good to have been put in this position because believing that, as Barry Cry used to say, I shouldn't buy any green bananas, uh, <laughs> it certainly made me appreciate what I had, what my priorities were. Um, part of the reason I haven't done stand-up for the last two or three years, you know, because I wanted to be with my family. But, you know, there comes a point where you think...
2: <laughs> so that was
0: enough time, right? Over the phone, the doctor explained there are two kinds of testicular cancer, the good kind and the very good kind. I had the very good kind. Furthermore, if I had one shot of chemo, that would move my odds of survival much closer to 100%. You have a kind of one in four chance of it coming back if you don't have the chemo, and the chemo makes it one in 20. It's true that I'd been unlucky to get a fairly rare cancer without exhibiting any of the usual causes, but by the same token, how lucky had I been to get one that's basically curable, one that they'd already basically cured? I dodged a bullet, or rather, I jumped over it and it nipped me in the nutsack. Uh, You know, it's sad to lose a gonad in a gunfight, but you, you can't really complain when the gunfight that is cancer has so many much more serious casualties. I was completely aware of all the way through this. Even with a definitive cancer diagnosis, I was still in denial. Right from the start, I'd felt like a fraud that I was using up resources for people with proper cancer. And even now that I knew I had technically and actually had cancer, the imposter syndrome was still there. My cancer was like play cancer, the fun kind that came with no actual danger, meant you got sort of sympathy and food hampers. I got so many biscuits. I was like a cancer tourist on the Star Trek holodeck. Or maybe bollock deck, I don't know. I was I was shown all the sights that someone with proper cancer would see, but it wasn't going to ravage me or destroy me. I'd paid with an admittedly unusual testicular currency to safely experience what someone with a proper deadly cancer would experience, and then just walk away, albeit like John Wayne. (laughs) All these people with proper dangerous cancers, and I come along with my ninety nine percent curable one and get to pretend that I'm in the same boat. I can claim to be, and I have claimed to be, a cancer survivor. I've had cancer, and I'm not dead. Uh, But uh, given that the worst pain I was in was because I had a jock strap on for too long, uh, I can't really see myself being recognised at the Pride of Britain Awards this year. (laughs) I'm not saying it was right to feel this way, but that's the way I felt. Even now, I stand here and I say this, I don't really believe that I had cancer. It's because I have the same preconceptions about the conditions that I think many of us have, that it's a death sentence, that anyone who gets it, however bravely they fight, and even if they seem to be winning, will get weak and thin and bald and succumb to it, that doctors will be able to postpone the inevitable for a while, but ultimately it's game over. The truth is, every cancer patient story is different. Cancer is often survivable. Uh, many cancers are treatable, and people go on to live long lives and die of something else entirely. You know, maybe, maybe, a, maybe a totally different cancer. You know, you never know. You never know your luck, do you? That's the thing. Bizarrely, I was finding having had cancer quite useful, because over the next few weeks and months I realised I was able to get out of work or social engagements that I didn't fancy by saying, oh, sorry, I didn't know. I've, I've had cancer. So. <laughs> Even when feeling uh, fitter than I had for years, because I kind of got really fit after this, I'd get an email from someone asking to be on their stupid podcast, and I, I could say, oh, sorry, haven't you, didn't you know I've just had cancer? And they, they'd actually apologise to me for having the temerity to ask. It was the most brilliant thing that's ever happened to me. This is great, I said to Katie. I only have to say I've had cancer and everything goes away. What a scam. She said, you know you have had cancer, right? Yeah, but not really. No, you, you really have. Yeah, but not properly. Rich, it was cancer. I know, that's why I can tell people it's the best thing that's ever (laughs) happened. I was still in denial, and I realised I needed to confront my cancer and make it seem real, so I did what any right-thinking person would do, and commissioned someone to make a ventriloquist dummy of my missing testicle. Um, I don't don't know if you know this about me. I used to be on TV. Uh, But... um, During lockdown, I uh, I had a kind of TV studio set up in my house and I started doing a um, ventriloquist show with my great granddads 130 130-year-old ventriloquist dummy called Ali, and then a few other puppets came in. It was, it was like a topical <laughs> show. It's still going on. <laughs> Go, you watch it every Thursday. And I kind of thought, will this be an interesting way to try and process this? The, a guy called Richard Eisenham made me these amazing puppets, one of Prince Andrew, unbelievable uh, Duke of <laughs> York puppets. Uh, and I said, you know, I thought, can I ask him to make me a, a puppet? of my excised testicle. I thought, yeah, I can. Um, it's, going to be a, it's going to be a cold in here, isn't it? I just, I'm just going <laughs> to... His eyes falling off, oh my goodness. Eee, <laughs> I'm the right bollock. He's called right bollock. Um, for the audience at home, uh, my producer has suggested that I uh, explain what he looks like. He's, about, he's just next to my real arm there. <laughs> <laughs> First of all, just poking uh, at He's Imagine so, he's about the size of uh, a human head. So it's pink, it's egg-shaped sort of, and covered in veins. Yeah, don't be rude. Uh, it has sort of demonic ping pong ball eyes. One of the eyes just fell out, that's just to make it more exciting. But oh, look at that. <laughs> Take my hand off. I told
2: you.
0: <laughs> oh, there we go. Sorry. all right. It's quite hard to do this with a microphone. <laughs> it has the furrow brow of the Neanderthal and a pulsating bubo on its lower face, inexpertly hidden with some sticking plasters. I've been ill. Leave me alone. I know you've had cancer. Sorry. Um, maybe the most disturbing bit is it's got a large mouth filled with sort of tombstone teeth. Eee, uh, I'm a right Bullock? Look at this. what are we doing. I thought we'd be playing. What's going on? You used to be on the TV, you and you're what? playing a little shitty fub in Angel to about 45 people. What happened? What went wrong? Eee, <laughs> I'm a right Bullock? though. Aren't I am a right... Yeah. <laughs> what happened to the other fellow you used to do stuff with? Uh... Yeah, I cut him off as well. Uh, so. <laughs> So I've got some questions for you, and we'll see how this goes. <laughs> Why do you have a Yorkshire accent, right, Bollock? Like, well, because you're from Yorkshire. You are not a loyal person like me now, then, and. Uh, <laughs> I was born in Yorkshire, and I retained my accent unlike you. I stayed loyal, I stayed fiercely loyal to everyone. Well, you haven't stayed very loyal to me, you tried to kill me. You deserved it, you neglected the balls. You did a whole show without talking cock. Now you're going to have to do a show called Talking Dollocks, aren't you? That's literally with me, I'm a talking dollock. You do a show where you clear stones off a field. Now I've cleared one of your stones, haven't I? You do a show where you play snookers yourself. Now I've potted one of your balls, haven't I? You did a short film in which your character cut off all of his genitals. And, yeah, actually, that one's a bit on the nose, isn't it? That was, uh, that is a, um, <laughs> it's nice to meet you, right, Bully. Do you think this is a healthy way to attempt to process my cancer? Uh, I'm not sure. Has it helped you out doing that? You know, I don't understand. You know, you're part of my body. Are you treated me badly? Think of all the good times we had together. You know, all the times I got someone to caress you. No, not very often. Sometimes people would lick you. Yeah, you were pushing their head down, trying to get them to lick your ass though, weren't you? It was just on the way. I I wouldn't do anything like that. Don't even know what you're talking about. That's not a thing. But we had good times. You know, you made at least one of my kids on average. I made both of them. Do you think that other guy is doing anything in there? That was me. (laughs) Are you still producing my sperm now? Yeah, I'm still producing your sperm, and I'm giving it to sperm banks, and I'm gonna make hundreds of horrible zombie children <laughs> that look half like you and half like me. Uh, it's really hot, it's really hot. Uh hold on. Hold on I don't think anyone's noticed how this works. <laughs> I don't understand why you tried to kill me, because if you kill me, then you die as well, don't you? Isn't that... It was worth it, Richard, going solo. <laughs> <laughs> I don't care, I'm a right bollock, isn't it? That was right, I've got a bit hot. that was right bollock. Now, from that moving and dramatic BAFTA award-winning portrayal of my right bollock, you might think the testicles are coarse and tough and uncompromising. But my next guest, award-winning stargazer and scientist Harriet Witt, would argue that their greatest characteristics are, in fact, their fragility and vulnerability, which none of us like to admit, but that's definitely a big part of owning testicles. I especially know that more than anyone. This is because for centuries, testicles have been used by wayfinders as navigational instruments Whilst they're still attached to them, I have to say, don't think that people have cut them off and put them in a compass and shook it around and hope for the best. No, their own testicles have helped them cross vast oceans. This sounds absolutely unbelievable, but I promise you, it's true. As you might be able to tell from the long-distance quality of the audio in this interview, Harriet is based in Maui, in Hawaii. But through the magic of the internet, we were still able to talk. So I started by asking her, what. Wayfinders actually are.
2: Wayfinders are the people of Polynesia. Nobody is quite sure where they originated, but it looks like, based on genetic analysis, they were Taiwanese people long, long time ago, and they made their way across the Pacific and eventually to the Hawaiian Islands, the most isolated archipelago on Earth. And they never have had any need of the maps or the technology that Western scientists claim are necessary. Right. That in itself is, wow, that inspires me. Anytime somebody <laughs> can do something that the Earth experts claim is impossible, I want to know about it.
0: <laughs> so this is from like something like 500 AD. Is that roughly the time we're looking at? Or we don't know what time it, is, no, when it, it was.
2: No, further back than that. Further we back. really don't know for sure, because uh, in the tropics, everything rots, you know, so it's hard to date.
0: <laughs> yes.
2: So we really don't know. All we have is the legends and, um, well, and some other things that would indicate how successful the Polynesian people were. For example, the native people of New Zealand, the Maori people speak the same language as native Hawaiian people, even though the two places are 8,000 miles apart. Wow. Uh, There's slight differences in accent. Here in Hawaii, we say aloha and the Maori people say aroha. But the groups understand each other. And among the Maori who still chant their genealogy, some of them trace their ancestors to Wailuku. Wailuku is right here on Maui.
0: Right. That's amazing. So tell us what methods you know about that were possibly used in general as well, rather than we'll we'll get to testicles in a second, maybe. But what other methods were used to do this? Because it sounds impossible.
2: They still are used. Yeah, (laughs) It's, It's not work. Yeah. The most obvious method is the stars, celestial navigation. Everybody in the world pretty much used that. It's just that the Polynesians relied on it so much more extensively because they traveled such greater distances. And that's how I came to it. My background is in astronomy and, and celestial navigation. Right. So I was putting together a lecture that I was asked to put together, and I was doing a lot of research on this. And that's when I discovered the information about the fact that testicles were among the many navigational instruments that the Polynesian people relied on. Uh, right. It
0: sort of sounds bizarre, but would you, can you explain how testicles were used to navigate vast distances through the Pacific Ocean?
2: Well, since I don't have testicles, my (laughs) explanation is probably not adequate, but uh, (laughs) this is the best we can do. Uh, Also, it sounds strange from a Western perspective because Westerners have a great deal of shame about their bodies and we can trace the origins of that, but we don't need to do that right now. Native Hawaiian people don't experience their bodies as something shameful. So that's a huge thing right there. Yeah. Yeah. So among the many natural maps or navigational tools, however you want to call it, that the Polynesian people relied on in addition to the stars was the navigator's testicles. The reason that this was important is because one of the things you need to keep track of when you're navigating the Pacific is something called ocean swells. And ocean swells travel way below the surface of the ocean. They're very, very deep. So you can't see them on the surface. And they're very big. So you can't see them on the surface. But each swell has a very distinct vibratory pattern. Oh, and I should mention the swells travel in like parallel lines, one after the other, after the other across thousands and thousands of miles of ocean. Okay. And each swell has a distinctive vibratory pattern to it a characteristic vibratory pattern, which the navigator monitors with his testicles while seated cross-legged in the bottom of the canoe. And to make this easier on the navigator, there always used to be, they don't have it anymore, but there always used to be on the side of the canoe, a little tiny canoe just for the navigator. The tiny canoe had a thinner bottom which allowed the vibrations from the swells to pass more easily up from the ocean into the navigator's testicles.
0: So they're just resting their testicles on the actual bottom of the boat. The boat is in the water, so is underwater, essentially. Yeah, exactly.
2: sitting cross-legged and not wearing much clothing.
0: <laughs> it's amazing. It's like when I, I injured my testicles twenty years ago when I used to have two while I was in Barbados. I got hit by a wave and my testicles swelled up to about three times its size. And on the plane home, (laughs) I could tell when the plane was going higher because of the pain in my testicle would get increased as the plane went higher. Flying by the seat of your (laughs) pants. Yeah, exactly. So it is a similar thing. But, yeah, Yeah. so it's using this fragility and this vulnerability because, obviously, any other body part, isn't going to be quite as sensitive as the most sensitive part uh, or as close to the water, I suppose. And the testicles are sort of calibrated in this way because they're not symmetrical and they're at slightly different levels and they obviously can move around as well, depending on heat and that sort of thing as well. So they are this very scientific (laughs) piece of measuring equipment. I've never heard of anyone else thinking of using them for that. Possibly because you're right, that Victorian England scientists would probably have uh, felt too embarrassed to be walking around with no trousers on uh, and measuring things.
2: I love what you're saying about the testicles are all about sensitivity and all about masculinity. And I appreciate the paradox of that because we live in a culture that often fails to appreciate the paradox. (laughs) We live in a culture that's always either this or that, you know? (laughs) And uh, if we can't embrace paradox, how can we embrace life?
0: But again, that's something in the West, especially that we suffer from, is that the idea of a masculinity being this aggressive and sort of macho thing comes probably because of the fear of how sensitive you, the, a man is and how a man can be felled by a little a toddler running into him head first. But actually, you know, I think it's so important for men to talk about these things and to see this example of men being, you know, it, it, it does seem comical to Western ears as an initial idea, but I think when you actually think about it, to see men using something so sensitive to do something so important and beautiful. But of course, it is still, it's something that only men can do. There aren't many things that only men can do. (laughs) And, And that particular part is something only men can do. And I think it's, you know, what a fantastic role model that culture is for, you know, masculinity being more than, you know, fighting and drinking and screwing when you're doing something so wonderful.
2: Thank you. Oh, you saw so much more in it
0: than I did. Well, we have reached quite a moment of philosophical brilliance there, haven't we? I'll have to take a moment of calm to think about it. Anyway, it's advert time. Time to sell some stuff. So let's forget about philosophy. Let's have some adverts. You can think about the brilliant things I said during the adverts if you want. And we'll be back in a sec with more bollocks. This is Can I Have My Ball Back? And you may remember I'm chatting to scientist Harriet Witt about how testicles could be used to navigate across oceans. I mean, to be honest, if you don't remember that, then what the hell have you been doing? Rewind a bit and listen again, because this is phenomenal stuff. I read in your article that the early explorers couldn't believe that it was possible that people could have travelled so far, so they assumed there was some extra continent that was just over the horizon because that was the only way they could make sense of these supposedly primitive people, supposedly not scientific people, managing to navigate in a way that was equal or surpassed, I suppose, even what the scientific instruments could do.
2: Right. Well, you know, the Europeans, and particularly the British, made a mistaken assumption several centuries ago. The mistaken assumption was that the ocean is random and disorderly. Right. Once they assumed that the ocean is random and disorderly, then they further assumed that if you want to navigate open ocean, you have to superimpose onto it a man-made order with the longitude-latitude grid. And it was invented by your people. That's why the starting point of the longitude-latitude grid is in Greenwich England. Yes. you know.
0: (laughs) But the truth is, if you're immersed within the nature rather than sitting on a big boat above it all, you're actually in tune with what's going on. And I mean, it must be decades and centuries of observation, I'm presuming, that created this.
2: Yes, absolutely. The... Observation of the ocean allowed the Polynesian people to avoid making the mistake that the British people made. The Polynesian people never assumed that the ocean is random and disorderly. And you know, since then computer simulations of the ocean have demonstrated that it's not random and disorderly. It has an order to it, but it's not that lockstep mechanical order that the Western mind recognizes. No. In.
0: That's really interesting. Is this something that still happens to this day then?
2: They are still navigating, but they are not, as best I can tell, using that method anymore. Right. Uh, I'm quite sure that they're not, because just recently the email that I received from the Polynesian Voyaging Society was announcing the fact that the new navigator is a woman.
0: Uh, (laughs) 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 Yeah. So is there a downside to using testicles for this? I mean, obviously, like testicles in cold environments can tend to retract and disappear. Then presumably the, even the Pacific's pretty cold, I would think it's warmer than the Atlantic, but it's still got to be fairly cold if you're dangling your bits into it.
2: I love your questions and I don't know how to answer them. <laughs> I lecture about this on a regular basis. You know, I live on Maui and we have a gazillion tourists here. So I entertain tourists with stargazing programs on a Pacific Whale Foundation boat that goes out into the ocean. So I talk about this all the time, but no one has ever asked me these <laughs> questions.
0: <laughs> no one has thought about testicles as much as I have. That's the, oh, that's the, I that's the problem. And I, I wonder as well, if with for me, I'm down to one testicle. So if I was employed in this, would I be half as good? Or, or do you think one testicle is yeah. enough to do this? Or do you think you need the pair? I'm
2: sure it would be shipwreck. <laughs> <laughs> No, I like your questions because it's reminding me that there's this amazing biointelligence in nature and there's biointelligence in our own bodies that we're not recognizing because we have shame about our bodies. Yeah, But we need all the biointelligence we can access right now because we humans have really screwed up on this planet. You
0: know? <laughs> it's definitely true. And I think those years of shame and all the ignorance around this subject, when you look at Western knowledge of this subject and philosophy on this subject, you know, it's sort of crazy how long misconceptions were held in terms of even just things like thinking that one testicle produced male sperm and one produced female sperm. And like uh, that was a sort of Greek idea that lasted until the 19th century. People still thought you could put an elastic band around one to prevent you having a female child or a male child.
2: Yeah, I didn't know that. But and it's also interesting to me from an evolutionary perspective because theories of evolution until just a few years ago told us that survival of the fittest means who can fight best. Now we're discovering that the fittest are also those who can cooperate best. That's a whole new narrative to evolution.
0: Yeah, and I think what I love about this, if, if anyone said, right, I've got this idea and I'm keeping it to myself, it wouldn't have worked. It needed hundreds of people to be in every different place and to share the information their balls had given them and their eyes had given them.
2: I don't know if you're aware of it, but speaking of communication the way that they transmitted their knowledge of navigation from one generation to the next was through hula and chant, because right. they writing. So hula, and I'm not saying that all forms of hula are communicating celestial navigation. There's many forms of hula. But one form of hula is specifically for communicating the knowledge of navigation to the next generation. And that means that your own body is like a moving map. For example, if I were trying to share with you my knowledge of celestial navigation, I would use my waist to represent the Earth's equator. Right. Makes sense, doesn't it? Absolutely, yeah. And then I would position my feet at different angles. I don't know how familiar you are with hula, but the hula dancer's feet are usually, not always, firmly planted on the ground. Okay, okay? But you can imagine that there are many different angles that I could have between my two feet. Every one of those uh, degrees apart is information.
0: Yeah, it's amazing. You know, obviously mapping the stars and understanding the stars, but then equally to have got to the point where you understand what's beneath the water enough and to understand the swells of the water, it's absolutely astonishing. I love that they were able to tell when land was approaching because of different ripples in the water. And in the article, you mentioned that they might have a, was it a pig they might have on board that could smell land before (laughs) they could? Yeah
2: bow of the boat the pig can smell land long before you and I can see land and yeah. I have a feeling that if you keep the pig a little bit hungry yeah yeah excited when it-
0: <laughs> <laughs> and if you put the pig's balls in the water as well god knows what if the pig's got the sense of smell and using its balls to find land who knows what will happen but so yeah it takes you right back to a time where where humans were part of the natural world in a way that they're not anymore and we're able to work around the natural world and understand it because they were part of it. And those balls dipping in the water or being above the water, it's literally a connection between man and nature and and providing an understanding. There's a lot of ancient knowledge there that I think would surprise us if we had full access to it.
2: Absolutely. I mean, for 99% of our human existence, we were hunter-gatherers. The sky was our clock, the sky was our calendar, and the sky was our compass. And we all knew how to read it. But if you look at the sky, you'll notice, are there any dates written on the sky? Are there any directions written on the sky? In other words, we were reading patterns in a way that's unimaginable to us today. Today, we just look at the, you know, I look in the upper corner. I say, okay, Wednesday, June 22nd, 1033 a.m. That's all I have to do. I don't have to bother looking. But when I do look at the sky, I have a connection with the heavens that I don't get when I just look in the upper right-hand corner of my computer screen and I see at 1033 a.m. You know what does that connect me with? The guy who made the computer? I
0: don't <laughs> <laughs> I love the connection between space and earth and water and everything's in there. It's sort of elemental all those things combining, and then testicles in the middle of it. So that's beautiful.
2: <laughs> I really appreciate your thoughtful consideration of this topic. <laughs> <laughs>
0: What an absolutely terrific chat with Harriet Witt that was. I apologise that the audio quality was a little dodgy. She was on the other side of the world on a tiny island, miles from anywhere else. But more significantly, the Wi-Fi in Hertfordshire was playing up. My village is probably more remote than Hawaii when it comes down to it. And arguably less beautiful and and not quite so much surfing. Do check out Harriet's website, passengerplanet.com, if you'd like to know more about her and her work. On the whole, though, I have to say her website is quite a bit less testically than that interview might lead you to believe. So if you're looking for more stuff about testicles, I think you'll find some stuff on the Internet. You just put testicle into your search engine and a lot of stuff will come up. So uh, good luck with that. Now it is time, one of my favorite parts of this show, to look at the messages you've been sending into us at cihmbb at gmail.com. can kind I of have my ball back at gmail.com. I really want to thank you for all your emails. They are absolutely terrific. We're getting some amazing stuff. Seeing as this episode has had a bit of a science in nature slant, uh, here's an email entitled bird testes that's been sent in by Emily. She says, Hi Richard, I thought you'd get a kick out of hearing how my husband, a bird biologist who studies hormones, measured bird testes for his PhD research in the Arizona desert. For aerodynamic reasons, bird testes are internal, so my husband would have to catch the bird, apply a local anaesthetic, delicately slice open its abdomen and use calipers to measure each gonad, before using superglue to close the incision and let the bird fly away. Amazingly, the birds have no adverse repercussions. Their skin is such that they don't even bleed from the cut. When released, they go right back to their little birdie lives... During your very thorough ball-based studies, you may have learned that almost all wild male birds go through a yearly puberty where their testes grow in order to produce the testosterone responsible for reproductive behaviours like singing to establish a territory. I do that. Nest building. I do that. And of course, mating. Don't do that so much anymore. On behalf of all the humans I know with testes, I'm happy that they only have to go through puberty the once, which is more than enough for cracking voices, spotty faces and general debilitating awkwardness. Yours, Emily. Well, you know, it is very interesting that various animals have internal testicles, so it is possible, God, to not have them dangling down there where they can be smacked against each other or... Shortly after my operation, I went to a kid's birthday party and uh, someone booted a football right into my one remaining bollock and it still hurt like buggery. So it was horrible, but it was good to know that it still worked. But if that was inside, like a bird's one, then someone would have to cut me open and super glue me up to get to it. Wouldn't that be better? Maybe not. Our next email comes from Andy, who has two scrotal stories to tell us. Mm, greedy little Andy. Uh, he begins... Back in 1972, at the age of seven, I had to have an operation for an undescended right testicle. I woke up after the operation with my now dragged down right nad stitched to one end of an elastic band. Oh, the other end was attached to a splint on my right leg. This was apparently to reduce the risk of the ball retreating back up again. Well, you know, they're springy things. There were other lads in the ward who had had the same operation, but I was the only one whose surgeon preferred the bollock anchor stitch technique. They were out of bed in less than 48 hours, whereas I was stuck lying on my back for days. The worst was day two or three, when the rubber band had lost some of its elasticity and needed to be wound up again. I'd never known pain like that of it being tightened. I was just seven, remember. I mean, I think even if you were 57, it was unlikely that you'd have had your testicle on a sort of medieval rack on your leg. Even worse than that was one of the nurses was the mum of a girl in my class at school. So to literally add insult to injury, when I got back to school a week or so after coming out of hospital, the whole class knew exactly what I had had done. My next bollock, god, poor boy. My next bollock operation saga was my vasectomy in 1999. Okay, well that's self-selected. At the pre-op checkup, I mentioned my earlier ball operation, as my right bollock had always pretty much remained at the size it was at seven years old, which is apparently a common occurrence after such an operation. The young doctor doing the pre-med nodded, but wasn't that interested. On the day of the operation, my ball sack was numbed and the procedure began. My big left ball was not a problem and the slip was completed in a minute or two. Then there was some furtling about. Then some discussion. Where's the right ball? More furtling. Where the fuck is it? This is a bit sore, I said. Is it the one I had my operation on you're looking for? Operation? Yes, when I was seven. My undescended testicle. Oh, sweet Jesus. The junior doctor hadn't written that on the notes. Look, it's a bit hard to find it. It's not very distinct or developed. But if we don't find it, although it's unlikely to be producing much sperm, we can't guarantee the vasectomy will be effective. OK, go for it then. Then they had a really good look, but the pain became excruciating. Mercifully, an anaesthetist was available. I quickly confirmed I had no problems before with general anaesthetic and I was knocked out for the procedure to be completed. I'd have done that from the beginning. I think the junior doctor had his own testicles removed by the consultant shortly afterwards. (laughs) But that wasn't the worst thing. In 1999, I was 34 and had my own local dental practice. When I'd arrived at the hospital on the day of the operation, in the day patient waiting area, I'd spotted three of my male patients sitting there waiting to have their own vasectomies. Not only that, but I also saw one of my female patients there for the wisdom tooth extraction that I'd referred her in for. Even worse, when my turn came to be wheeled into the surgery, the theatre nurse was also one of my patients. It was like the whole of school knowing all over again. Ah, oh, poor old Andy. He seems traumatised by this whole experience. It doesn't matter if people know about your testicles. Now everyone who listens to this podcast knows as well, Andy. And they can work it out. You're called Andy, you're a dentist... We're going to find out and we're all going to come outside your surgery and shout one big ball, one tiny ball at you. And that will teach you for taking people's teeth out. Yeah, I don't like it. You don't like it when your stuff's been messed around with, do you? Sorry, I've got some issues with dentists. Now, you're probably aware that this is an international podcast going all around the world to many countries. People who can't even speak English listen just to hear the beautiful timbre of my voice. And we've had an email from Finland from someone called Miko, which is what I imagine everyone in Finland's called. Uh, maybe I'm xenophobic, I don't know, but I think that's a nice thing. I think he's called Miko, and he's eating a little ice lolly. It's covered in chocolate, and it's ice cream in the middle, and that's also called Miko. It's not a magnum, it's a Helsinki-based confection. Email in and let me know if I'm right, Miko. Greetings from Helsinki. I used to be a student in Birmingham. In January 2005, I started to feel an awkward pain in the side of my body. But I was 25 and not that worried about my health, so I thought it would probably go away soon. When my right testicle started growing in size, the university clinic sent me for further tests at the hospital and they diagnosed liquid buildup that could be treated. I was given a spot on the waiting list. By now, it was Easter time and I went to Finland for the holidays. I saw another doctor there and he told me that it was a tumour that needed to be operated on urgently. They did the op one week later, at which point they concluded that the tumour was malignant and I had cancer. It had spread quite a bit around my body, so I was facing three to four rounds of chemotherapy. I had to notify the university that I was unable to continue after the holiday and that I would be back in the next academic year to finish my degree. Everything had changed every plan I had in a very short period of time. It also meant I had to delay a research trip to South Africa that had been planned for the summer. But getting better for the rescheduled trip in the autumn was the goal I needed. When Bob Champion talked on your podcast about needing something to aim for, I felt that to be very true, even if my goal wasn't quite as high profile as his was. Bob Champion, of course, you'll remember, his goal was to win the Grand National. I, you know, they, you can't judge one goal against another. That Yours is just as high profile, in my opinion, Miko. In the end, the treatment worked well, as tough as it was, and by late summer, I'd finished it. After a handful of checkups, the doctor gave me a go-ahead to continue my life normally. However, I was told that I wouldn't be able to have biological children, which felt like a big blow, even if I had no particular plan in place to have any, or anyone in my life to have them with at the time. In October, I travelled to South Africa, and in the first weeks, I met a wonderful and enchanting woman who is now my wife. And after many years, we also had a child together. So that is some evidence that unexpected things can happen, even against the odds. Though my cancer was gone, what did remain for quite a while was that same sensation that Bob Champion mentioned in his interview with you. My hands and feet were very cold and couldn't feel much. Any amount of cold weather would be painful and I would just put them under hot water as often as I could. One time I scared the corner shop cashier as I was giving her money for my purchases, but my hand was entirely blue, like you'd expect a corpse to have. And I had to calm her down by saying I'd been having some health difficulties and this was just part of it. Whilst it may sound like my return back to life was relatively straightforward, in reality it was filled with fear. I was paranoid about any discomfort and felt many times the frightening sensation, oh, here we go again, but the cancer never came back. As long as you're in the care of doctors and nurses, and I thank all of them both in the UK and in Finland, you're being well looked after. And as difficult as it may be at times, it's also bizarrely fairly easy. It's only afterwards, when you're by yourself, feeling your fears, having an ache and blue fingers, that you go through the struggle that no one warned you about. It's then when you can feel quite lonely. Thanks again for the series. I'm happy that you survived this and talk about it. It's important. Well, I'm also... Miko, look, I'm sorry I mentioned ice lollies and you got cold hands. That was insensitive in hindsight. But I'm also delighted, of course, that you survived. And yes, I absolutely get that... The months and years afterwards can be very scary. You're obviously very paranoid about it coming back. It's easy to misinterpret things as being something bad, and you know. But that's okay because you can go to the doctor and the doctor will check you up. It won't matter how many times you go in. I, w- I went in several times in the first year. You constantly worry about it. That is like a burden to bear. But as I hope this series and my book demonstrate, you know, there's so many positives, and survival is one of them. Appreciating what your life is. That's a sad story in lots of ways, but lots of happiness in there as well, and having a child despite being told you not being able to have a child is a wonderful result. So thanks very much for you speaking about it as well. One of the really great things that's come out of all of this is that I'm getting emails from people who've said, oh, I listened to your podcast or I saw you on Gone Fishing and I had the same thing and I went and got checked out. You know, at least four or five people have uh, have discovered they are in trouble earlier than they might have if we hadn't talked about it. So Even for that reason, talking about it is very important. But yeah, do be aware that that feeling of loneliness, that feeling of fear is very normal and not something to overly concern yourself about. And it does pass. Anyway, that was a serious one. We have one final email for this episode, which says, Hi, I'm a specialist cancer nurse working in the NHS. I just wanted to say I'm enjoying the podcast. It's a bit of a busman's holiday, but thank you for listening and hope it encourages men to check their nuts at home and with a professional if concerned. Many moons ago, a close friend of mine noticed a lump and went and got it checked out. Thankfully, all was fine. Once the lumpy conkers jokes had settled, there was an acknowledgement that most of us friends would have been too embarrassed to have done the same. There was a tacit agreement that we should all follow his example if lumps or other changes were noticed. So many years later, just last week in fact, when I had blood in my pee and felt like I had been kicked in the crown jewels, I went and saw the doctor and had my plums examined the same day. It wasn't something I relished, especially as the doctors know me professionally, but it had to be done. And I owed it to my pal as well as to myself, especially as a cancer nurse who constantly tells people to self-examine and get things checked. I've been reassured that my NADs are currently fine. Fingers crossed they remain so. Thanks for all the great work you continue to do. I hope your remaining NADger gives you long service and no trouble. P.S. When's International Testicular Cancer Day? Um, I guess November the 19th is a good place to go, isn't it? That's what the men on International Women's Day are particularly worried about. I mean, there's a lot of irony in me getting testicular cancer. You know, all those people who said... Why is testicular cancer not talked about as much as women's cancers? And then I got the cancer, so, you know. Someone's looking down at me and laughing their fucking nuts off. Anyway, with that, we've reached the end of episode 7 of Can I Have My Ball Back? Episode 8 is going to be along very soon indeed. But before then, remember to check your scrotal navigational aids. And do look out for my book, Can I Have My Ball Back? It's available in paperback from October the 18th, 2023, £11, wherever you get your books. It's fantastic. It's a perfect Christmas gift. Give it to the men in your life. Give it to the women in your life. Give it to the non-binary people in your life. Give it to everyone in your life. There's something for everyone in there. Balls are something we should all know about. It's an enjoyable and fun read whilst taking the subject seriously as well. Can I Have My Ball Back is presented by me, Richard Herring, and thank you very much to my brilliant guest, Harriet Witt. I am, of course, indebted to my producer, Ben Walker, more so for this podcast than any of the others. He's done a fantastic job on this one. Thanks also to Chris Evans, not that one, or that one, my researcher, Alex Hiscock, George Lingford, the incompetent sound man, and to be clear, the Zoom interview sound was nothing to do with him. That was entirely the fault of the internet connection in Hertfordshire. It wasn't the fault either of Rich Evans at Syncbox. So thank you to him for not being involved in that debacle. I'd also like to thank the Bill Murray and the Phoenix where I recorded the stand-up. The music is by Gustav Holst. You know, another man who used the planets to navigate himself to success in a way, I suppose. Uh, thanks also to BMG Music Library. This is a Go Faster Stripe, Sky Potato and Fuzz production. Thanks for listening. Do come and see me on tour. richardherring.com slash gigs is the easiest way to find out where I'm going. And gofastastripe.com. You can buy books and downloads. And just tell your friends about the podcast. If you can't make it to the tour show, if you don't want to buy any products, then every time you listen to an advert, you're helping us make more podcasts with a very, very tiny micro payment. So thank you very much for that. I love you all. It's lovely to meet you on tour, by the way. Hello to everyone who's said hello so far. I do come say hello after the show if you if enjoyed it, if you want to see me. That would be nice. You can get a selfie. I don't
2: care. I'm a selfie whore. All right. See you soon.